Welcome to Bird Show, where we find ourselves, which, and, and I'm going to take this term from the BBC because I liked it. Uh, they have described this point of the season where all the championships have been settled as dead rubber. Interesting. Okay, dead rubber works for me. Yeah, that that's kind of where we are. And, and, you know, I think we mentioned it last week that back in, oh, end of August, beginning of September, this is not where we thought we were going to be with the season. <laughs> no. Not at all where we thought we were going to be with the season. I mean, coming back from summer break, I would have laid down a whole dollar bet that we would have been going all the way to Abu Dhabi for the championship. You know, if not Abu Dhabi, that at least we would have made it to this weekend for, well, for the Drivers' Championship to be settled. We we were pretty confident that Constructors' Ferrari was not coming back. But instead, what ended up happening was, let's face it, what Ferrari has done the last several years is as we get deeper into the season, things just seem to go a little sideways. Well, we had the post-summer break fall apart from Ferrari that seems to have occurred the past few years. Um, but and the, unlike in previous years where they completely just fell apart and the car just got worse and worse and worse, the car's still competitive. Well, the thing is, I think the car's actually still improving. Mm-hmm. It's every other thing has conspired against <coughs> them. Yeah. And quite frankly, what is it that we say takes, takes to win a, a championship? It's the right car with the right driver at the right time and a whole lot of luck. Yeah. Well, Vettel's got no luck. I mean, he'd have to have bad luck to have any luck at all right now. Um, yeah, kind of. I mean, it, it not as bad as Lewis last year. No, but I'm sorry. The, the triple takeout in Singapore, I think that that really shook people. I, it definitely had an impact on Ferrari. I, I still go back to, and, and I am going to stick to this no matter how many people want to say otherwise, that Vettel, as a driver who was fighting for a championship and fighting for the win, had every right to be as aggressive as he was in Singapore, knowing that Max was there, even if he didn't know that Kimi was coming up alongside too. I agree with you. When you're fight, fighting for a championship, you're as aggressive as humanly possible. I think Kimmy was unconscionably not in the right spot. Okay. That, that was taking out his own teammate. You don't, he was not fighting his teammate for position in the construct, in the championship. He was not, and I get everybody wants to win, mm -hmm. but he had no business squeezing his teammate. He, Vettel and Max would have survived that had Kimmy not been on the other side. Yeah, arguably they, they probably, or at the very least, Max would have had somewhere to go. Right. But, you know, while we're talking about Lewis, do you remember a couple of years ago there was uh, something called the Panama Papers? Refresh my memory. Okay, the Panama Papers were a couple of years ago there was... Um, a data breach at a law firm in Panama that was known for handling uh, financial records and financial transactions and legal transactions for many of the rich and famous. Okay. And as a result of that uh, data breach, 
the financial transactions of many came into question, including um, um, Nico Rosberg and some of the things that he had done to shelter his earnings. Um, Now, other than the fact that his transactions were revealed, there was nothing that seemed shady about it, just that they were done in secret, which is normal for that kind of stuff. Well, a few weeks ago, we had what was what is being called the Paradise Papers uh, revealed. These came out came to light due to a data breach from a law firm in Bermuda. Okay. Um, again, a lot of financial dealings, nothing nearly as groundbreaking it seems as the Panama Papers, except for some questions um, regarding some business dealings that Lewis has had. In particular around his beloved candy red bombardier business jet. Oh really? What is the interesting dealings of his candy red jet? Um, well it was a in specific it was a bombardier challenger six oh five that he imported into the Isle of Man in twenty thirteen and got a three point three million pound VAT refund. Now VAT is the value added tax. The way the laws is written is that um, if you're in a country that, that pays VAT, um, items that are purchased for personal use, you have to pay VAT on. Items that are purchased for a business use, you can get the VAT rebated. Okay. So Lewis got 3.3 million pounds rebated from the Isle of Man for the plane. Because it's in his corporation? Because I'm sh- assuming Lewis is incorporated well, y- y- of some type. That's the, the – there, there's a lot of question about it. And what first started to raise people's uh, – or, or what started to catch people's attention is if you look at Lewis's social feed, uh, any of his feeds, the jet features prominently. And the places that he goes in the jet features prominently, whether it's vacation or business or whatever, as it's part of his lifestyle and what he does. Mm-hmm. So the question of, well, how much of those dealings are business dealings and how much are personal dealings, especially when he says he's off to wherever to enjoy whatever. But keep in mind, I mean, as a devil's advocate that I am required to be, he is his own brand. He and- is, but wait, there's more information. Okay. So how this whole transaction happened, and I, I had to review it because it, it's complex, and I had to review it multiple times before I started to get a handle on it. So the way this went down is Lewis worked with a company in the British Virgin Islands to buy the plane. That company then leased the jet to a company on the Isle of Man that Lewis owns. That company then, this is the company on the Isle of Man, they lease the jet to yet another company, which is a management firm that charters the jet solely for Lewis and a German company, which also Lewis owns. Okay. Okay. Now, as a result of all of that, he gets the 3.3 million pound VAT rebate for the plane being for business use, but... In the forms that were submitted, I guess, through this whole thing or or the paperwork that was done with one of the the leasing companies, the whole idea behind and the concept behind the plane and and, and the the stated use for the plane was that two-thirds of its time would be used for business use 
and one-third for personal use. Okay. So now we've admitted that there's some personal use involved here. And that is the other part of where the question becomes, because once you say that it's for personal use, that there is personal use involved, there's a question as to whether or not you can get your VAT refunded. Okay. Yeah, it, 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 it's, it's complex. And the whole deal that went down of, well, okay, he buys it from one company who leases it to a company that he owns – which leases it to another company, which charters it to him and a company he owns. Well, see, I think that's part of the way that you're calling it business use because if that company is leasing the plane, then they haven't actually bought the plane. Therefore, VAT does not apply. And then he's chartering it. Therefore, it it's where does ownership fall in all of it? Yeah, that? and that's, I think, one of the other things here is the way this deal was written, it, it appears like it was it was specifically structured in a way to, at the very least, obfuscate the true ownership of the plane. That makes sense. And that could be questionable in its own right. We don't know how this is going to shake out, but it it's odd and it's convoluted. That's about all I can say. Okay, but let's back up for a second. Mm -hmm. Devil's advocate first. We are Americans that don't have a VAT. Yeah. And therefore the ins and outs of the nuances of the way VAT works is not inherently obvious to the American. Secondly... We are not multi-billionaires. We're not. We're also not, as Lewis is known, a tax exile. Right. And just kind of adding some of those things together, I think it is totally reasonable to assume that a lot of the super wealthy, which Lewis would qualify mm -hmm. as, has super smart people that are looking for loopholes within various codes yeah. to make sure that as much of his wealth stays his. And and, and I, I agree with that completely. And if he has found, if he or his staff have found and exploited a loophole that is entirely legal, but a loophole, whether it takes yeah. 92 hump, uh, jumps to get there or not, then you can't fault him for leveraging a legal loophole. You can't. Where I think the British are spun up over this, those that are spun up over this, is the fact just trying to separate what Lewis does for personal reasons and for personal enjoyment as opposed to what Lewis does for business reasons, especially when, like you say— in many respects, Lewis is a brand unto himself. And and I think that that promotes line is hyper blurry. And, and, and that, that's where I think some of the Brits have some issue with it. By comparison, and, and, and BBC threw the, this comparison out there, which I thought was a pretty interesting one. Of, you know, everything that Lewis does, he shares. He's very public. He's very open with that. And then you look at somebody like Sebastian Vettel, who also, yes, he's German, 
but he's also a, a tax exile uh, living in Switzerland, which Lewis did for a while now. He's over in Monaco. But he's now a tax exile living in Switzerland, which is about all folks really know. Mm-hmm. They're not completely clear. They know he has a kid. It's not clear if he has two kids. And they even admit on the BBC they're not sure if he's married. So it would be a lot easier to pick apart what is personal for Vettel and what is personal personal for Lewis. Yeah. Because everything that you would know, everything that is public for Vettel, which is, is very little, is business. Mm-hmm. Lewis blurs the line. But yes. Lewis is is brand Lewis. And I would suspect that a lot of what he does that comes across as being personal all has a business leverage to it. He's in L.A. making his music. He's doing this, and it connects to that. I would bet that that man has a spider web of things that you and I would consider, oh, well, that's a vacation, but it's probably not. He's meeting moguls, and he's doing this, and he's he's constantly... You know, meeting and making it making an appearance somewhere, something that. along and so those it, lines. It, it blurs to the point of being hyper fuzzy, and the fact that he does share so much in social media—that's not necessarily him being promoting his personal life in social media. Yeah, who's Lewis dating these days? Do you know? I actually don't, for once. See my point, and you know he's got to be dating somebody. He might be, and and the the other thing you've got to wonder is, especially when it comes to to Bombardier, um, if you look at his feeds, he's very quick to um, to point out when he's using something that Bombardier makes to promote Bombardier, mm-hmm. whether it's the plane, whether it's the off road vehicles, whether it's the jet skis. That, you know, yeah, I'm, it's great to be out on my bombardier, whatever. He does that a lot. You remember there was a, was it a judge's wife or a senator's wife or somebody? She's a model, so she's like the third wife or whatever. Oh, it, it was um, the Treasury Secretary's wife a couple of weeks ago, a couple of months ago. And she was photographed stepping off of, I think, Air Force One or one of the planes. No, it was it was a government plane, plane. government market. It was not Air Force One. Uh, so was she was a photograph with- taking it, and she hashtagged it with every brand she was wearing. Yep. And how, you know, the, the media in the States trashed her for it. Mm-hmm. I'm willing to bet that Lewis is getting a kick on all of that, but Lewis can do that legally. The Treasury Secretary's wife cannot. And, and, and that's, that's the big difference right. is that, you know, he's not getting – stepping off an official plane and doing all of that crap. No. Um, but, but but that's where she got that kind of idea from is from that yeah group. And just I go back to don't miss the fact that brand, Lewis is a brand. Yeah. And he's going to I I'm willing to bet that if you could peel it back and if you knew everything that was going on, he's got a semi sponsorship deal with Bombardier and he's got this, that and the other deals going. That man's got more deals happening than we know. Including did you hear that he is speculating that he may not stay in Formula One for much longer? I haven't heard that, but there's a lot of talk of just given his age that maybe two years. Um, well, some of it might be his age, but I think that since he's in the middle of negotiating with Mercedes, that that's also part of his ploy. 
of maybe I want to go seek out yeah, other things and do other stuff. And, you know, how are you going to make it worth my while to stay around? You know, here, let me show you my fourth winning, my fourth, fourth world championship trophy. And you tell me why I should stick around. That's entirely possible. So. Speaking of Mercedes, mm-hmm. um, those of you who watch the, and, and I'm sure it w- it's been mentioned on several of, of the various broadcast outlets. I know NBC mentioned it. Uh, the Mercedes team on Friday night, the Friday uh, after the free practice sessions, they were held up in the team minibus after leaving the circuit. At gunpoint. At gunpoint. Um, supposedly shots were fired. According to Lewis, Lewis put up uh, a tweet. Some of my team were held up at gunpoint last night, leaving the circuit here in Brazil. Gunshots fired, gun held at one's head. This is so upsetting to hear. Please say a prayer for my guys who are here as professionals today, even if shaken. Um, He then later added another tweet that said, this happens every single year here. F1 and the teams need to do more. There's no excuse. Um, That same night, there were also members from Williams and from the FIA. They were in a convoy of cars that were targeted by robbers near the circuit. They managed to escape when a track... Traffic lights changed, allowing them to move on. But I believe the FIA were also in armored vehicles. Oh, my word. We mentioned a couple of years ago that Jensen had been Jen- held up. Jensen was robbed in, in, in Interlagos. It's not a safe place, guys. It, it's not. Um, in response to this, the organizers have arranged for as what they have called heavy police reinforcements around the track. Uh, following the incident. Uh, in a station, statement issued by the FIA, the circuit has informed all of the all of the event stakeholders that the Sao Paulo Police Force has taken additional measures after these regrettable incidents. Heavy police reinforcements will be on duty for the remainder of the event. Um, Toto Wolf said, we shouldn't be needing armed vehicles, bulletproof glass, agents in order to make it safe from, from the racetrack to the hotel. But then this is the circumstances, and maybe our approach in the past was a bit lenient. Easy because Brazil is a cool country. But it must have been a really scary moment for the guys. We all left just about at the same time at 10 o'clock, and being stopped and having a gun pointed at you must be awful. When we came to the circuit, it looked like civil war broke out. So many police officers were on the track. Let's see what happens tonight, but it shouldn't happen. He's right. It should he, happen. He is. Uh, Will Buxton mentioned it, that he'd been stopped about five years ago. We've talked about this before on the show of, uh, of teams getting either held up or stopped or attempts being made that they've escaped from every year. Mm-hmm. And it's no secret. Everybody knows that the area around Interlagos is extremely poor. They're known as favelas, which are basically slums. Yeah. It, but I don't think it's just, I mean, being poor does not make you a criminal. It doesn't, it does, but it does attract criminal elements and criminal behavior. It, it does, and I think that it also is key that there is some lack of police presence because the police are there to protect the wealthy, and not policing the favela. Well, one of the other things that I've got to kind of wonder, and, and 
yeah, I get if you own a track, and this is a track that has struggled, you, you, tr- you want to make money for yourself and the investors. But knowing the state of the communities that surround the track, what, if anything, is the track doing as an organization and knowing that this is an ongoing issue and part of the reason why it's an issue is the, the poverty that surrounds the track, what is the track doing to help the community situation in the surrounding communities? That's a good question. Are they plunging money in? Are they assisting and, you know, trying to employ the locals who live right around there as opposed to busing folks in? Are they doing stuff to make life better? I don't know the answer to that. I do remember last year when we were doing the first farewell to Masa. <laughs> um that Masa spoke because there's a go-kart track that's connected to Interlagos. Yeah. And it's where he learned how to drive was on that go-kart mm-hmm. track. And I remember him talking about some of the kids from the area surrounding Interlagos are do are getting opportunities to get on that track. But that doesn't mean anything when you're talking about how expensive it is to to cart. Yeah. I mean, that doesn't give you a leg up that you could get out of the favela because you could be a superstar racer. You got to you got to have your chops and that takes money. I mean, Lewis's dad worked two and three jobs to pay mm-hmm. for him to get on the track. And Lewis had a lot of gift. Yeah. So, I don't know what they're doing. You one would hope that they're trying to do something, but I am assuming from given the size of what is around that track and the poverty level, it could seem like an overwhelming task to try to do it, something. It can, and I, I'm not sure what they could do. I'm just wondering, you know, what impact the track is having on the surrounding community, and I don't know. But all of this, the security issues, we know that there has been a big push, and, and it's why Bernie, when Bernie was running Formula One, threatened to take the race away, was there's been a big push to do some redevelopment and some improvements on the circuit and the facilities. Yeah. And while it's better than it was about three or four years ago, it's still not great from what we understand. And the, the teams are, are, are still not happy. Well, there is a tender that has been put up for the sale of the circuit. There are currently three interested parties to purchase the circuit. Bernie? Bernie is one of them, which isn't really, I think, a huge surprise. No. Um, The big piece of this, though, is that the tender will include a clause that makes it the buyer's responsibility to guarantee the race long term. And that's where, as I look at this, and and the contract that's currently in place for the race is only through 2020. That's two years. That's not long term. No. So if Bernie buys the track, could you imagine the um, Formula One group and Liberty Media going to, to Brazil and going, all right, you want us to stay here with all the security issues and all the facility problems that you used to beat them up over and you haven't fixed Either you're going to, we're going to raise your fees by this much, or we're going to Argentina. <laughs> because there's been a lot of talk lately about an Argentinian race and going back to Argentina. 
there was talk about that. And this is the question I have about that idea. I get that you have very few Brits that are currently racing. Mm -hmm. But there is no love lost between a segment of the Argentinians Mm -hmm. and our British friends. But there are a lot of Brits in the mechanics and the engineers. Yeah. And that group, too. I I don't think it would be as big a deal only because of the fact that Formula One has been back to Argentina since the Falklands War. As much as there is some some bad blood, Formula One has raced in Argentina since then. Okay. And now it it may be an issue to some extent. I don't know. Well, I mean, we just cannot trade one war zone for another war zone. Yeah. I mean, I I don't want the guys to get held up at gunpoint. I think that's bad. Mm -hmm. Opposed to gunpoint. Just trying to make it clear. Want to make sure that everybody understands I'm opposed to being held up at gunpoint. But I also, just like we talk about Bahrain, we got human rights violations, yeah. things like that there. We have to take care about where we put these races, that it's safe for both the teams and the spectators. Yeah, I don't know enough about Buenos Aires and where the track is and what that air, that region is like. Okay. But Charlie's been there a few times. He's he signed off on the track. Hey, if Charlie says it's good, I'm good with Charlie. So, actually, I should mention there was some some mentions about the contract. Um, what the race promoter Tomas Rahoni said was that this whole thing with the redevelopment is that it's an ongoing process. And the municipal government keeps working on the circuit. The current phase of redevelopment started three years ago and will stretch into next year with the new garages to be built ahead of next year's race. Um, They do say that the event has been close to a sellout. Uh, Attendance this year is its highest out of the last five. Wow. So, yeah, they're, they're hoping to keep the race beyond 2020, but, of course, it depends on the terms of the contract. Now, not having Bernie involved. It could change. It could change. But I think it'd be really interesting if they sold the track to Bernie Eccleston and then Liberty went to him and said, okay, pay us. Let's talk escalator clauses. (laughs) Some of the work, though, that has been done in advance of the race this year is uh, they're trying to address – obviously rain is an issue at Interlagos – but when it rains heavily, the track ha- tends to flood. Correct. As we saw last year. So they did. Rivers s- of water is what we, we get told. Yeah. So they did some work to try and hopefully ease the drainage situation. I don't know if we're going to see it, how it works out this year. It, it sounds like the race will be dry. Um, and we kind of had some spits of rain for qualifying, but it doesn't look like we're going to have torrential downpours. A dry race in Interlagos seems so wrong. It does seem kind of odd. But what what has been done, they've resurfaced the apex of turns 2 and turn 12, plus they did additional grooving of the track in places where water has accumulated the most during the race last year. So this was around turns 2, 3, 12, 13, 14, and 15. And in order to ensure that the grip of the track is more consistent, it is being cleaned twice with very high-pressure water. 
Um, they also added sausage curbs behind the existing curbs on the apex of turns 2, 4, 8, and 10, which I don't think that's so much for a drainage thing as much as a driver thing. Mm. Interesting. Yeah. Also being tried and, and at uh, Interlagos for the weekend, and I know NBC Sports, again, they discussed it. I'm sure other areas have discussed it as well, is a new blue flag system. Yes, I thought that was kind of interesting. And it, it answers a question, at least as a fan, that I have had for a while of, okay, if you're a driver in a pack of cars and you see the blue flags, how do you know that blue flag is for you other than I haven't been lapped before? Well, they're, they've included now, they're making changes to the little electronic displays that not only will you get the blue, the flashy blue light, but it will display the number of the driver who the blue flag applies to. I think that's I think that's a long time coming. Yeah, I, I don't know if it'll quite resolve the driver complaints because at the end of the end of the day, it's still a matter of the drivers paying attention to it. Right. But you're taking but one think, less thing away. I think you get one less excuse of oh, I didn't know that blue flag meant me. Now the way the rule has been working and the way the signaling has been working is that driver gets the blue flag warning via a blue flag a blue light panel, and a blue cockpit light, and a message on the timing monitors. And this all happens when one of the leaders moves within 1.2 seconds of them. Okay. So So now you're adding also the number two. Well, and that way, I think that winds up being more for the other drivers. Hey, stupid. Well, no, (laughs) it's more of the, we recognize this guy has a blue flag. Um, Because if you think about it, by putting it a blue light in their cockpit, they shouldn't be able to say, oh, I didn't know that meant me. Yeah. <laughs> so, but if, you know, you've got Lewis behind you and he's about to lap you, at least Lewis can see that, yes, the race stewards are telling this, pers- this person that they Get have Get out of the way. Yeah. So some of the other drama that has come up and and honestly part of me is really not completely surprised and another part of me actually kind of is surprised given the state of the relationship um there seems to be some bad blood that has bubbled up between Renault and Toro Rosso you think why are you why are you not surprised why are you surprised by this knowing that Toro Rosso is walking away from them. There's a part of me that was like, yeah, they're just, you know, whatever happens, we're done, we're done, we're moving on and go forward. But what sparked this wasn't so much Toro Rosso right now or, or sparked the current controversy, but Renault. Okay. What did Renault do? So on Friday, Cyril Abitbull said, we do have a little bit of concern about the way that our engine is operated in the Toro Rosso car, adding that there are never coincidences in this sport, and talking about all of the engine failures that have happened. Toro Rosso took great umbrage with these comments. Okay. I mean, basically, he turned around and said that the engine failures in the Toro Rosso cars are Toro Rosso's fault. Didn't Renault have engine failures? They did. Wait a minute. Let's review the the race, the previous race in Mexico, where there were only two Renault engines that 
finish the race. One was in a Red Bull. Yep. And one was in a Toro Rosso. Yep. No other Renault engine finished that race, correct? Yep. None of them. Yep. I'm not mistaken on this, right? Nope. Okay, so yes, totally. Toro Rosso is screwing up their but, engines. But again, the Cyril Abitbull. We do have a little bit of concern about the way that our engine is run in a Toro Rosso car, adding that there are never coincidences in the sport. So he is saying Toro Rosso is breaking our engines. But their engine- That's what Renault says. So, okay, Toro Rosso's the issued a statement Saturday morning in response to Cyril Abitbull's comments. Mm-hmm. They said, it comes as a big surprise to the team that Cyril Abitbull has suggested to the media that the problems Toro Rosso suffers with the power unit are primarily team-related and the way in which the power unit is operated in the SDR-12 chassis. We would like to clarify that all the MGUH and shaft failures Toro Rosso has recently suffered are not associated with how the team is operating or with how the power unit is integrated in the chassis. Nothing has been changed or altered in this installation during the 2017 season other than cooling improvements mid-season. Since the summer break, Toro Rosso has suffered continuous power unit-related failures, and the resulting grid penalties has cost the team points and relative positions in the Constructors' Championships. One of the primary reasons for the issues we are seeing is the lack of new power unit parts available. In Toro Rosso's case, the team is constantly having to change parts from one power unit to another during the weekend and on many occasions is forced to run old specification assemblies. The last race in Mexico saw only two cars out of six finish the race, highlighting the poor reliability. The statement ended, We mustn't forget that we are fighting with Toro Rosso for a better po- oh, we, we mustn't forget that they are fighting with Toro Rosso for a better position in the Constructors Championship. As suggested by Mr. Abitbull, the situation may not be a coincidence, but it is certainly not due to STR's car. So translation, Toro Rosso is saying, hey, we're beating Red Bull, or, or we're beating Renault, and Renault might not appreciate that. So our engines keep blowing up. I wonder. <laughs> There's no coincidences in the sport. Yeah. <laughs> so I hear that the person that is trying to calm everybody down and is going to everybody and go, everybody hold your water, is Helmut Marko. It is. He put out a statement that said, over the last 10 years, many successful, we have been through every emotion with our current engine supplier. As usual, at the end of another season, emotions are running high, but it is a valued relationship and will remain so. There has never been any question that we have not been treated fairly and equitably by our engine suppliers, and that is still true today. So let's just like bask in the moment for a second that the voice of reason, the voice of calm, is Helmut Marko. Until Franz Toast started speaking. And did he become calmer and more reasoner? No, he went the other way. Uh. <laughs> Franz Toast spoke to Sky Sports F1 earlier today and said, The statement was a reaction to Cyril's interview yesterday where he blamed the team for the power unit failures, which is absolutely wrong. Why should I apologize for all the damages we have? We're both upset. Who started with all this nonsense? Cyril yesterday with his stupid interview. Should I say, oh, fine, good interview from him, and we accept it? No, we don't accept it. Therefore, we came out with our statement. Nanner, nanner, nanner. <laughs> You're rubber and I'm glue. So Alan 
Prost had to jump in. Now, remember, Alan is now a special advisor to Renault. Okay. He said, and, and I, I'm not going to try and emulate Alan's oh, speech because it, I would fall asleep. Well, I'd fall asleep halfway through it. But he said, you won't have a response from ourselves. We don't want to enter into this game of answering. I just listened to what Fran said. As you know, the Renault company involved in F1 for a long time, and we proved that by giving exactly the same engine to everybody, which is not the case of the other manufacturers, we will never play any dirty game to gain one position. Okay. <laughs> All right, so the championships have been decided, but the spinning match is obviously continuing to go on. Yeah. This, this will be interesting to, to see how this shakes out. So this week we had qualifying. Well, this week we have the race, but qualifying was today. We watched it. <laughs> okay, yes. This week we have a qualifying. This week we have a race. And yes, we have watched qualifying. The race has not happened yet. You are a master of the almost obvious. Almost, but not really. <laughs> okay, so where, where are we going where, with where this? Where I uh... was inelegantly trying to transition over to. Whoa. Emphasis on inelegant. <laughs> but I was inelegantly trying to transition to is qualifying today. You know, normally when qualifying starts, especially the first, like, oh, four or five minutes of Q1, you kind of get sleep through because there's not a lot going on. I know, I've Folks are doing, that. Yeah, you have. <laughs> You know, folks are doing their outlaps. It's, you know, they're, they're doing some spotting and some sighting. There's not a whole lot going on. Not so this week. What do we get? Like 45 seconds into it on an outlap and... Lewis is in the wall? Lewis is pretty big time in the wall. Yeah. Now, of course, we were forced to watch substandard coverage, which means that we had to listen to David Hobbs stumble through how Lewis wound up in the wall for the next entire session of qualifying and how unusual it is yes but the thing is as much as they want to say how unusual it is the the thing is is as much as brazil is a track and interlagos is a track that lewis likes to say that he loves driving it doesn't love him just like monaco he says he loves monaco but isn't a track that he's had a whole hell of a lot of success at i mean yeah, he's had some success, but he's only won it once. Yeah. I mean, I think part of it is Lewis likes tracks that challenge him, which tend to be the tracks he doesn't necessarily do super well at. Some of it is that Lewis likes tracks that challenge him, but I think what the two things that this track has in common, and there's one really that I think is really what narrows it down as to why Lewis quote-unquote loves this track. It's the same reason he quote-unquote loves Monaco. Ayrton Senna. Ayrton. Yep. That more, I, I don't think it has much to do with anything else other than Ayrton Senna had, was known for being legendary at that track. He was known for being legendary at Monaco. Therefore, Lewis must love the track. Well, he is Ayrton reborn, right? <laughs> Something. Um, so after the session, Lewis spoke with reporters. Now, word came out that Lewis will be starting the race from uh, the pits. He yeah. will not be starting from the back. There's a good reason for this. It, it's strategy. It makes sense. Um, but what Lewis had to say, 
was I was just taken by surprise. The car bottomed out a bit. If you look at the replay, the car is bottoming throughout the corner. Often when it bottoms, it stalls the floor, and that often happens when the car is cold and the tires are cold. These sort of things happen. I hadn't gone in there any quicker than I had done before, anything like that, but it's my fault and I should take full responsibility. He said, it feels the same as it would at another point in the season. It's less painful as the championship is done, but I still feel it just as much. I take a lot of pride in my commitment and how I drive. I haven't made any mistakes all year. I haven't made any mistakes all year, and it's been a long time since I've put the car in a wall, but it happens. Once it happens, there's no point dwelling on it. All I can do is keep my head high and move forwards. It's been a good weekend up until then. Hopefully you can tell I've not lifted off the gas and backing off. I was going for it, but I'm human still. I'm starting from the pit lane. It's not the most exciting, but you can only go forwards from there. I will try to give it everything I've got. I love the fact that he's like, I'm human. It happens. I really like that. That's part of the things that I like about Lewis. Yes, but if the championship hadn't been decided, oh, he that's been not what he would have been saying. He would have been Mopey Lewis. He would not have been saying, I'm human and it happens at all. Not I one know, day. I know, I know, but the championship was decided. He's human. He can be human this time. Now, as you recall, um, what was it was really early this season. It was, what, around spa that mercedes dropped engine number four into lewis's car and we said there's no way he's going to make it through the season on just that one last engine there's going to have to be an engine change and we thought at the time because of how the season was shaking out that that could really have a significant impact on the championship well now the championship has decided Lewis has got to start from the back. So Mercedes has turned around and said, you know what? Let's throw in the fifth engine. That it, makes I good mean, sense. Go for broke. The other thing that they're that they're putting in is they're going to put in a new MGUH and a turbocharger. Um, one of the things that Mercedes has decided that they're going to do since we're in this dead rubber period is let's test some things out. Ah. Let's look at, you know, what what – what we could possibly do to impact the 2018 concept. I like it. So that's what's going on here. There's also been, actually, I won't talk about that now. I'll talk about it later when we get to it. I'm talking about looking forward to 2018. Okay. We'll, we'll stay with the qualifying. Felipe Mas is a little upset from his qualifying. Oh, was he, he ever? He had a great save oh, in Q3. Oh, um, it I mean, yeah, when you see the in-car, it looked a bit more frantic than it did outside the car. Outside the car, it just looked like a really cool um, drift that he did around the corner. But <laughs> In the same corner where Lewis had eaten the wall. It was. Um, however, Felipe says that this wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for Carlos Sainz. Yes, he was very ticked off at Carlos Sainz. And apparently in, his po- in Felipe's post- race uh, qualifying interview he said that carlos and he had talked after the race and carlos admitted that he had disrupted his his lap yep he said i even spoke to him and said this time you disturbed me on purpose you knew i was coming and he said yeah i knew because you disturbed me yesterday in the long run Mm -hmm. so felipe was just 
really livid about this. Well, Carlos Sainz, on the other hand, says, I don't understand it. I don't understand the accusations and all the problems. Maybe he misunderstood the situation. He was in my way a lot of times in free practice and once in quality, and that's it. We had our issues in free practice, but in quality, I didn't see any issue apart from him impeding me. I know that he impeded me in turn four, but I don't know why he says I impeded him, and even less that I did it on purpose. It's something that I don't understand at the moment. It would be good for both to think about tomorrow because we have a 70-lap race, and to complain about one lap in qualifying doesn't make any sense. Let's see how he wakes up and how I wake up, and if we have the time, we will talk. Yeah. I don't know. We've seen Carlos kind of do some little passive-aggressive stuff every so often. I mean, remember him declaring that he wasn't going to help Daniel Kvyat anymore, and Daniel Kvyat could basically go take a long walk off a short short pier and never come back ever again? Yep. And guess what happened? He, he's he's not coming back. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I don't know. I mean, I, I wouldn't entirely be surprised if Carlos had done something like this, but again, it's one thing to do it in practice, in, in, free practice and another to do it in qualifying and i think masa even said that yeah um i do i will say this felipe masa is such an incredibly nice guy that despite the fact that you know he is utterly and completely spitting mad even his anger is a nice guy (laughs) he's not daniel ricardo no, he's not he's not the honey badger, no. But he's so not Vettel either. Yeah. He is. I mean, at his core, he's a really nice guy. And we got to see a little blip of Felipe this weekend. Yeah, just a real quick one. So hopefully we'll see a little more. You mean Filipino? Filipino, sorry. Yes. Not Felipe. Hopefully we'll see a little more of him. Yes. I like him. He's one of the reasons I like Masa so much. So this past week... Guess who met? (laughs) That's right. The strategy group met again. Talking about all kinds of things for 2018. One of the things that they talked about. Now, I thought that this was resolved. Nothing's ever resolved with the League of Super Evil. Remember, even once they decide it, it can be undecided. I... I thought this was resolved. I thought this was a non-issue. I thought we were done. The declaration was made. The rules were changed to the aerodynamic design earlier this year that there were not going to be shark fins in 2018. I, th- I, th- I thought this was, this was settled. It turns out that this was a topic over the weekend, or over this past week, at the meeting of the strategy group, um, with several teams apparently working on concepts that they already had underway that included shark fins. Now, the problem is, in order to change the rule, it must be unanimous. Mm-hmm. Has to be, because we're so far in the season. Well, McLaren has apparently decided that, no, we're not doing that. And so, they have blocked it. So McLaren doesn't want to do the shark fin. Yeah, what... Uh, Eric Bouye gave some comments on the situation. He said, maybe we have found a way to use the engine cover that works better. The cars are complicated today, so it's difficult for Zach, speaking of Zach Brown, so it's difficult for Zach to find big stickers. 
But we are not playing games. Everyone is developing their own car. So if you ask for something which is against our interests, I will not go for it. Some teams have tried to play something that was more suiting their car model or whatever. But we have a regulation in place for next year. So if there's no unanimity, then there is no reason to change. Now, this is there, there's a couple of questions as to what has been motivating keeping the shark fins around. Some of it is possibly aerodynamic because it, it does impact the stability of the air around the rear wing and how that works. But others like Force India and Otto Sofnauer seems to indicate that it's more related to sponsorship and the visibility of things like the rear wing, especially now that the rear wing is lower and whether or not you can see the sponsorship on the rear wing. That's interesting. I wouldn't be surprised because a lot of people are using that shark fin for the driver's number and their name, the three letters of their name, which removes it from other parts of the car, allowing them to have more sponsorship space there too. Yeah. So what Otto had to say was, we have to release an engine cover soon. It would be nice to know the rules. I thought we had it all agreed. McLaren, I believe, wanted to expose the rear wing more, but the rear wing isn't exposed only because it sits so low now. That is why you cannot see the sponsor, more so than because of the fin. The fin hides it from certain angles, but not from head-on. You can't see the fin from head-on. For us, it removes a pretty big area for the sponsors. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Speaking of sponsors... Hugo Boss has been a sponsor in Formula One for um, probably over 40 years now. 40 Since years? the 70s. Um, they've been a sponsor at Mercedes since 2015, and prior to that, uh, been a sponsor for McLaren for more than 30 years. Wow. And they have announced that they are moving on. They're heading to Formula E. Interesting. Interesting uh, place for them to go. Yeah. Now, I, I don't know whether or not that is they're terminating it at the end of this year or the end of next year. Um, but uh, Chief Executive Mark Langer told the German magazine Focus, uh, of course, Formula One is the top class of motor racing, but Formula E is more innovative and sustainable. The engines, the races in major cities, that's something a younger audience likes, which offers new opportunities. After many years of Formula One, ever since Joachim Moss in the 1970s, we have been thinking, what is the next thing? But there's one other thing that you've got to wonder. Now, um, Mr. Langer says that this isn't the case, but it's cheaper to sponsor a car in Formula E than Formula One. Yeah, true. Could that be some of the reason? Now, granted, the footprint is less. I mean, there's a reason it's cheaper. Yeah, but you've got a long-term sponsor that has been with the sport with two different teams, two very successful teams, because they were with McLaren during McLaren's biggest successes. They were with Mercedes during Mercedes' biggest successes. And let's face it, Mercedes really doesn't have a whole lot of sponsors on this car. Hmm. You know, they've got Epson, they've got Patronus, um, and they've got Bose, and they had Hugo Boss. They don't have a whole lot of sponsors left on the car. Interesting. 
you got to kind of wonder what's happening here. And does Formula One need to start being concerned about the number of teams, about the, the traction that Formula E seems to be getting? I mean, Audi dumped their WEC program to go to Formula E. Jaguars jumped into Formula E. Um, uh, who else has just jumped in there? Uh, all of a sudden, I just drew a blank. Audi's going in there. Jaguars in there. Porsche. Uh, Mercedes dropped their DTM to go in there. Porsche's not going to Formula E yet. Um, I think Renault pulled out of Formula E, but Nissan is taking their place. And since there's the, the whole strategic partnership piece, that's really not doing a whole lot there. Interesting. But it does feel like Formula E is gaining traction all of a sudden. And maybe there's a little slippage, at least from a sponsorship perspective, with Formula One. I mean, Formula One's not attracting new manufacturers, but all of a sudden Formula E is attracting a lot. But keep in mind, you've got other, two other things going on. Formula E is the new shiny. I don't and, think it really is at this point. And um, with the lower cost of entry, if somebody wants to dip their toe in a similar space, it's a way to do it. Not to mention the fact that Formula E has the advantage they can race in the cities. That That's a bigger thing. And I think that that's got... That's got the, that's starting to get your traction right there. They yeah. can race in tighter and smaller areas because they're silent. Yeah. Which oh by the way does that mean that maybe Formula One shouldn't be so cared worried about the sound? I would think so. Make the racing better, and the sound is going to be unimportant. But mm. we've had that conversation. Interesting. Another topic of discussion was budget caps. Hmm. Chase Carey has, has uh, said that he thinks that progress has been made. What he says is, I don't want to get too far into negotiating in public. I think directionally there's broad agreement about the direction we're talking about. We obviously have to get into the specifics, and in the details there will be differing views. It's our job to find the right compromise so that everybody feels they are much better off. It's a fair proposal, and it makes the sport much healthier. That's what we've got to do, to work through to find the right compromises and trade-offs. But as a direction, I think we have a broad-based support for the direction of all the initiatives we're talking about and the goals of those initiatives and the opportunity inherent in those initiatives. So, yeah, we'll see how that shakes out. He goes on to say, it will create a business model that would first and foremost be beneficial to the existing teams in it. But I think as a healthier business model, it would also entice new teams. When today people on the outside look in, in some ways they look at the challenges of the sport, what the top teams are spending, and that's a deterrent. When, and then they look at the competition on a track, which ends up with realistically with about six cars competing at one level and the rest of the cars competing in another because of the spending differences and the engine differences and the like. If you enhance the competition and create a cost structure that gave more predictability to the business, like cost caps in the U.S., what they do is protect them from themselves because competitive spirit overtakes and you just spend what it takes to win. So create a structure that makes it about how well you spend your money, not how much you spend. I think that will create a better model for fans, a better model for existing partners, and a much more interesting proposition for a potential new entrants. So 
it's good to see that they're pursuing some new entrants. Yeah. Especially when, again, you look at what Formula E is all of a sudden had a mass migration over to it. Why not turn around and, and see what you can do to attract some more folks in there like, oh, Ford. <laughs> no, I don't think Ford will ever come back. Chase Carey also responded to Ferrari's statement that they're threat to quit. Okay. What Chase had to say. He said, actually, I don't think we have a differing view to Ferrari. I'm not trying to be derogatory to NASCAR, but we don't plan to be NASCAR either. We don't want to standardize the cars. We don't want 20 identical cars going around the track, and the only difference is the driver. F1 is unique, and it marries up competitive sport to state-of-the-art technology. We want the teams to have the ability to do what they do to create cars that are unique to them, unique engines to them, unique bodies to them. But we want to make success dependent on how well you spend your resources within some constraints versus how much you spend. I think that's a healthier sport. And then those that can develop the technologies, develop the capabilities that are better than others, will enable them to succeed. And while I agree with that, I don't know how they're going to find that balance. Because that's been the challenge. Right. Yeah, I, I get the idea of you standardize some parts and go develop the rest. But I don't know, maybe there are some other areas like blown exhausts and some of these other things that they have banned that maybe they shouldn't ban. Or just banning stuff because, oh, that looks successful. Let's make it go away. <laughs> well, I think that that's a bad reason to ban something. Oh, that looks successful. Um, I, I go back to what I started my soapbox on last week. They ban so much that they prevent innovation. And I think that that is the inherent problem with Formula One today. To some extent, yeah. Now, Christian Horner thinks this whole engine thing, it, it's just... Politics being politics. Mm. Um, what he had to say was, there's been consultation with all the manufacturers. I don't think there was anything that was presented that was a surprise. I'd heard it all before, either in individual consult consultation or through what had been discussed in the media. What seemed to upset a couple of manufacturers was the press release that came out following the meeting. I think they were upset that it was presented as a fait accompli. Inevitably, there'll be some filibustering. And I think it's obvious that the commercial side of the proposition is being linked to the technical. So there's a lot of leveraging that inevitably is going on. You can see that happening. With Ferrari and Mercedes, sometimes it's hard to recognize which one is which or who's running which team, but they are particularly aligned. Um, he does urge Liberty to stand firm. He says, I just hope that the Liberty guys have got the courage of their convictions to go through with what their research has told them, and I believe they will. F1 has a habit of conducting his business through the media. It's all part of the theater and show that is F1 and part of the intrigue. I've been quite impressed with the way they've handled things so far, that they're not rolling over. There are no clandestine discussions and meetings going. What their goals and objectives are is very, very clear. That's cool. He says, I think the utopia from a personal perspective would have been to go back to normally aspirated, high-revving, great-sounding engines. But I fully understand the requirement to find a middle ground. I actually felt what was presented, whilst it doesn't tick the boxes for everybody at both extremes, was actually a pretty sensible set of proposals and ideology of moving forward. 
under Ross Braun, whose approach has always been to do the analysis and research prior to setting off on a journey. For the first time that I can remember, I feel that they've done that. Wow. Now, what I have to remember is, is this a situation where Christian Horner is, as he likes to say, thinking bigger than his own team, even when freely admitting that he does not and cannot do so. <laughs> I was thinking more of that we can never forget the fact that Christian is also part of the drama. He, he is. is part and, of the show. And, and, and that's what I go back to is, you know, he, he is quick to point out that everybody needs to think bigger than their own team. Except but him. no, we never do that. Except him. Well, that too. But it turns out, you know, we, we mocked last week McLaren. As More we, naturally. As, as we tend to, over the idea that they're excited about their prospects for next season because of the chassis. Well, it turns out that another thing that McLaren is excited about is Red Bull's performance this year. Well, yeah, because they're getting those engines. Exactly. They're actually, yeah, the, as Eric Boulier says, Fixing reliability is a challenge, but it's always easier than finding performance. What I would like to take on board is that Malaysia and Mexico, they were proper runaway wins. The Renault engine won two races in the last four races and in a very fair and clean manner, so no concern at all. They're excited about this idea. Mm -hmm. The question is, is Fernando going to be okay? Assuming that the McLarens are right up there with the Red Bulls with the new engines and their chassis working as they seem to think it is. Is Fernando going to be okay with the prospect of occasionally winning some races between blowing up engines <laughs> as opposed to never blowing win. up engines and never winning races? It, one could hope that that is a step forward for Fernando. But is that going to make him happy? No, but yeah. nothing makes Fernando happy. Red Bull is also looking at their um, development and release schedule for next year's car. Mm. So if you'll recall, the last couple of years in particular, Red Bull's unveiling and reveal of the car basically occurred at the track in Barcelona as testing was about to begin. Right. That was their big reveal. Off they go. Well, now they're saying that they're going to slide back about five days. Okay. They're going to launch the car early. The idea is they want to focus on a slightly earlier release target, but only about five days. Uh, the design is so concertina and production schedule so tight that those five days are actually pretty valuable in terms of being on the front, front foot rather than the back foot. Their intention is to try to turn up at the first test in a position to knock out about 100 laps per day. Since they've got regulation stability, the lessons they take out of the RB13, which is this year's car, will go into the RB14. They're hopeful that on the engine side, the performance and reliability improve over the winter, and there are fundamental aspects for them. They've demonstrated that they've got a really competitive chassis. Since Hungary, they've been very, very strong. So as Christian says, if we can take these learnings into next year's car, then hopefully we can start at a stronger footing than the second or so we were off in Melbourne at the beginning of this year. Because that was the concern 
that they have. I mean, this year was a very, very slow start for them. Mm -hmm. So the idea is having five days, revealing the car five days, takes some of the pressure of the testing because it's boom, the car's revealed, off they go and, and run testing. I think the idea now is you reveal it five days earlier, they've got a couple of quote unquote filming days do their filming days where they can run in the car, run in the engine a little bit, and hopefully get some of the early development work done then. Also, do they not gain some actual track time by not taking time away from testing to unveil the car? Well, I don't think that's typically an issue because it's like, okay, pull the curtains aside, now the car goes onto the track. So I don't know. That's, that's thought. But but it it is a possibility. So I, I I don't know how that's going to work. My, my again my my thought is that they're going to use the reveal and then go out and run media days and whatever, and use that limit up as that initial run in time to bed in components and things like that. Okay. So we know that this is Felipe's last race in Brazil this Maybe. year. This year. <laughs> <laughs> this year. Maybe. Okay. Um, BBC had an interesting theory as to what happened with all of that, how that played out, and why Felipe ended up announcing when he did. Hmm. So we know that Williams had been trying to come up with a decision as to what they were going to do for partnering with Lance Stroll. And we know that Felipe has been outscored by Lance, amazingly, or by like four points on the season. Williams had apparently told Felipe and come out in the media and said that they weren't going to make a decision on their drivers for next year until after the end of the season. The belief is, or the theory is, that even though all this testing was going on and everything that was happening, Felipe went to Williams and said, I want to know what's going on. Tell me what's happening. And Williams' response was, sit tight. Be calm. We haven't figured anything out. Don't say anything to the media. Just we're, we're trying to we're evaluating our options and we'll make a decision. But wait till the end of the season. And Felipe, trying to force Williams' hand, went to the media and made the statement that he did a couple of weeks ago that um, he thought it was foolish to put either Kibitza or Duresta in the seat. Ah. And Williams said, "Up." Oh, Thanks, you made our decision. You're not it. Yeah. We're done. Well, I mean, that's a plausible explanation. Now, we don't know what the decision is yet. However, it has been discovered that Robert Kibitza will once again be testing the car for Williams in Abu Dhabi in the mm. postseason test. You're still putting Kibitza in that car, huh? Yeah. Which is making it sound more and more like he is going to be the leading candidate. That'll be interesting. I, I don't know if I agree with it, but I wonder if there's some back-channel um, benefit beyond just what Kabitza can do. Well, one of those back-channels is probably Robert's manager. Who is? Nico Rosberg. Ah. Who also drove for Williams mm -hmm. and knows the folks there. 
And I would not be surprised if Nico, knowing Williams, and Williams being Williams, is very much attracted to the story of Robert Kubica. That's what I'm thinking is getting people, and if there's not some other benefit that comes out of taking on that story. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, and how they can it. sell that story. Think about it. That will be, if he comes back, that will be a huge sponsor promotion because they'll be the media will be telling that story multiple times no different than max coming on board and being the youngest driver and how many times did we hear he's the youngest driver to do this and he's the youngest driver to do that and all of those things every time they did that and flashed a picture up of max that's exposure for every one of those sponsors Mm -hmm. so from william's perspective it could be a sponsor boom for them when they've had a pretty much a lackluster couple of years now just a just a thought. Yeah. Pirelli is working now on it's expected to be eight different tire compounds for next year. Now, one of the things that they have acknowledged is that um, the hard compound was probably a little too hard for these cars. Mm-hmm. They're moving everything softer. So basically this year's soft will be next year's medium in terms of compound. Uh, But they want to increase the range, uh, going to homologate more than five compounds. Um, He says, it's coming from Mario Azola. If you exaggerate the number, it looks like you are confused. So we need to choose a number that is big enough to give us the flexibility, but not too big. Um, There's going to be a test next week with McLaren that will test some of the the compounds. He said, this will give us the final decision on the compound range. After this test, we will have all the information, if it's not raining, to define the range for next year. We don't, we don't know how many yet, but the idea is we need more flexibility to have choices that are more centered. So we have three compounds that are all usable at each event. So we have the Ultrasofts now. What are we going to have? The Ubersofts? Yeah, I, I don't know how they're going to work this. Um, but the other thing is, okay, so they want to try and have three different compounds that are going to be viable for the event. But at the end of the day, the teams want to have the softest compounds on the car possible for the best performance. They want so, to have the combination of the softest and most durable compounds. Yeah. So, you know, if, if you've got three tires – what are you going to end up with? They're going to run the softest of the softest, the super ultra mega soft snuggle bear tire for qualifying because it's only good for a lap and then run the other tires later. And they still only run two tires in a race and you're not going to get a tire. You could get a tire that's got great grip that could last the entire race distance, but then they can't run it because regulations say they have to change tires. Yeah. So you have to have a one stop no matter what. It gets it it, it gets complicated. Yeah. And then we're talking about tires, and you know how I get about tires. This is going to be one of those, and and as much as you don't like talking about tires, admit it, the strategy piece of what tires to use when you kind of dig. I dig that part. I just. The, it's all of the, will they, won't they, what type, how soft, high, high deg, low deg, too hard, 
give me some tires just give me a set of tires and then let's figure out can they last are they going to be soft enough to give the grip to get the speed and last are they going to be able to manage the tires do you get the hd tires or the standard definition i know (laughs) and then you know and then you know there's the being forced to listen to steve matchett explain on the 19th race of the season they haven't been doing that no 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 he does it every race that to remember the tires they qualify on in Q2 uh, well, yeah. are the tires they will start the race on every single yeah. time. It's at the 19th cha- race of the season. At, at least Channel 4 doesn't do it every race. No. They, they, it does pop up every so often, but they don't do it every single race. But I think even even when Channel 4 does mention it, it would be the, oh, look, Daniel Ricardo is on the harder tire, and it looks like that's going to be his qualifying tire, which is what he will start the race with. It's in a sentence that makes sense, not in a sentence that is well, the exact same sentence he's used for the last 19 Where races. you hear predominantly with Channel 4 is they're talking about it from a strategy perspective mm-hmm. of, yeah, they put Ricardo on, on the medium tire, but Verstappen's out there on the soft. Right. And it looks, looks like, like they're, they're splitting, splitting strategies. strategies. That kind of a, th- a scenario. Oh, it's that stuff. Or, oh, they don't expect him to do as well, so they're going to put you know get him to qualify on the harder tire so he can last longer. Maybe he's going to go for a one-stop race or you know, that type of thing. That's, that's interesting. But to literally say the exact same line every <laughs> single race, this this is why I'm looking at you, NBC Sports. You suck at this. <laughs> Next story. If you should happen to be headed to France, we don't know the exact time yet, but um, around the time of the French Grand Prix next year, the return of the French Grand Prix, make sure you get over to Marseille because they will be hosting a Formula One street event similar to the one that was held in London this past year for the build-up to uh, Silverstone. Think there'll be mimes there? I don't know. If there's not mimes, I'm not going. The Marshalls will be miming. Oh, that would be awesome. Don't they mime Mime. every race with the flags? Mime Marshalls. Don't, don't, the don't, don't the marshals mime every race because they just wave flags and they don't actually can say you anything. imagine charlie whiting trying to get out of the invisible box i think he would just kick it down he there are regulations on well, that well that's it charlie would rule that the box was not in compliance with technical ration technical regulation 34.2 subparagraph a dash c1 and therefore it would be null and void <laughs> it's an invisible box. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and can you imagine if they had my marshals and they played the the radio calls at the French Grand Prix? Box, 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 and all the marshals went. Box, box, oh box. man. Hey, you know, if you two think that that's a pretty dumb idea, leave us a comment over on Facebook. <laughs> Just, just look for the bloke and the bird show. We're there. <laughs> Trisha wants to hear what you have to think about her mime idea. My marshals. And on that note, we'll call it a show. My marshals. That's the best idea ever. <laughs>
are so glad you came. Bye-bye. 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 Bye-bye now. Bye. Bye-bye. Remember, please discard all candy wrappers and popcorn containers in the nearest trash receptacle. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye now. Bye-bye. Bye. <laughs> okay. Are they all gone? Uh, is, is, there, is everybody gone? <laughs> huh? Good. Oh my gosh, my cheeks are killing me. I can't keep smiling like this anymore. I am exhausted. I think I need a break. <laughs> a little break? Okay.